thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So we're going to continue our study of the book of Genesis, and we are in uh, chapter 42. By way of um, um, summary, we've seen that in chapter 41, uh, Joseph has been made essentially something equivalent to the minister of agriculture over all of Egypt. And when you think that agriculture is the main source of uh, power for Egypt, you can understand that it is a very uh, powerful position he was in. Um, and, and now, <clears throat> we're going back to Jacob and uh, uh, see how the drama is going to unfold for them to come down into, into Egypt from Canaan. So read with me which in chapter 42 if you have uh, scripture. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might befall him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He it was who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and knew them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan, to buy food. Thus Joseph knew his brothers, but they did not know him. And Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed of them, and he said to them, you are spies, you have come to see the weaknesses of the land. They said to him, No, my lord, but to buy food have your servants come. We are all sons of one man, we are honest men, your servants are not spies. He said to them, No, it is the weaknesses of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man, in the land of Canaan, and behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you, and let him bring your brother while you remain in prison, that your words may be tested. Whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in prison for three days. 
On a third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined in your prison, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he besought us, and we would not listen. Therefore is this distress come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the lad? But you would not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. And he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their asses with their grains and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his ass pro provender at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had befallen them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men, we are not spies. We're twelve brothers, son of, sons of our father, one is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, that I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver to you your brother, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were dismayed. And Jacob's their father said to them, Yeah, bereave me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come upon me. And Reuben said to his father, Slay my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he only is left. If harm should befall him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. So this is the first encounter between Jacob's brothers and Jacob after many, many years. At the very least, after nine years, probably longer. Seven years had gone by during which there was plenty in Egypt. After that, the two years he spent in jail before that, that's nine. Probably he was in jail even longer. And so anywhere between 9 to 14, 15, maybe 20 years. This is the first time they've come together. When they arrive in Egypt, they are obviously dressed like men of Canaan, beards, and the typical image you would have of men living in, in Israel at the time, whereas the Egyptians, remember, have shaven heads and shaven beards. And Joseph is dressed as an Egyptian. And when they speak to him, there is an interpreter between them and he, and therefore the brothers are not at all aware that they're talking to Joseph. So, 
The first thing we notice now is that at the very beginning of this chapter, there's Jacob who takes, takes once more the initiative. He is still the patriarch. He is still the one leading all them because he tells them, why are you, why do you look at one another? Meaning, why are you idle? Why aren't you taking action? And he's the one who directs them to go, to go down to, to Egypt and buy grains for them. And um, St. Ambrose has this to say about Jacob. Jacob said to his sons, why are you idle? Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy for, food for us. This is not something Jacob said one time. He says, it, he says it daily for his sons who come to Christ's grace too late. Why are you idle? Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. From this grain, there comes the grain that rises again. And so whoever suffers famine ought to attribute it to his own laziness. Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Generally, indeed, younger men hear of something more quickly than their elders, for many of the former travel about and are engaged out of doors. But an old man is the first to hear of this business matter, yet an old man who has lived to a great age in faith, an old man who has, who, whose old age is worthy of respect, and the time of his old age is a spotless life. The point that St. Ambrose makes is that he sees in this, obviously, a symbol towards the grain that came from Egypt. Behold, I have called my son from Egypt. And so why are you sitting idle? I have heard there is grain in Egypt. And the intent behind it, is, as St. Ambrose reminds us, is that we must constantly fight laziness. Right? We must constantly be aware that our nature, our broken nature from original sin, will tend to laziness if we let it be. I have heard, I think, Father Hemsch describe this life as, and I may have mentioned it to you, I don't remember if I did or didn't, but I thought it was a very good image. He describes this life as, a, um, as climbing a hell-bound escalator. I may have mentioned that to you, right? This image is very powerful. Uh, you know, if you try to climb an escalator, it's going down. If you don't keep moving, you're going to go down. So stopping or being idle is never an option. Right? And that's what, uh, uh, physically here, they're sitting, they're idle, they're doing nothing. That will lead to the death of their families. But spiritually, we today can be sitting idle, can be doing nothing every day to grow in our spiritual life, to mature. And that can also lead us backward. Right? So it behooves us every day to make sure that we're doing those spiritual exercises we need to do. Uh, whether it's uh, being patient with someone who is grating on your nerves, whether it is reading scripture, whether it is being obedient or doing your tasks, whether it is fighting the sense that you may have that you are worthless, that nobody cares about you, that what you do is not important which is obviously false because everything you're doing, God has prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Every little piece that you are taking charge of is something that God has prepared for you before he created this world. And he would have prepared it for you if you were the only one alive. And since it is God who prepared that for you, how could that be insignificant? 
The problem that we are all facing is we are more interested by the opinion and thoughts of others than we are interested in what God thinks of us. Because we tend to be horizontally bound. Right? We give more importance to somebody that the world consider powerful than to a person who may be handicapped and has a slur who can't talk. But God doesn't measure things this way. And so if we are not spiritually working on our vision every day to correct this, to understand that in our life what really matters is doing God's will and pleasing our Father, and if we were to do that, we can change the lives of many, if that's our view, if that's the focus we have, then we are climbing that escalator. Right? So if we can do what we're doing, regardless of whether the world considers it important or not, we are imitating Our Lady, who lived in complete seclusion, who, who did not, was not known or was not, her fame did not spread while she was alive. She lived a hidden life, and yet look to what degree of glory God raised her. And so we are all called to imitate her and fight our laziness. And the best way to fight our laziness is through love. To constantly, constantly kindle in our hearts the love of God. For the love of God, I will do this little thing, whatever it is. Right? That's really important because otherwise we're not growing spiritually. Okay? We're not growing spiritually. Otherwise, we would be like um, men and women running around wearing diapers. We were three years old, we wore diapers, it was okay. Now we're 30, 40, 50 and older, and we're still wearing diapers. I mean spiritual diapers. Because we cannot take care of ourselves. We have not grown. God expects us to grow spiritually. Yeah? So that's very important. What are you doing? I have heard there is grain in Egypt. Right? What are you doing? There is a grain in the church. Do not be hungry. That's the, that's the thing that St. Ambrose is reminding us of. So obviously, um, uh, when he says there were food rations, actually there was, food, there was food rations, he basically means that there is food enough in Egypt to break, to stop the starvation. Hence it indicates, I'm going back to the Hebrew uh, etymological sense of uh, the, the, the verse when he says, why do you look at one another? I have heard there is grain. The, in, in, in Hebrew it would be, there is something to break starvation. Hence, they are at, the, at their wits' ends. There is no choice for them. They need to go down and get food. The famine is too severe. There are no other options. Right? Uh, that's important. Looking at one another, as I said, uh, meaning uh, inactive and helpless. Um, and uh, so, um, literally, the word that is being used here, or the verb that is being used here to face, is really, is in a sense, to meet in combat. In other words, you really have to exert an effort. He knows it's difficult, because what they have to do now is, is take upon themselves a journey that is difficult, they need to leave all their families behind, and there is no guarantee to be able to, to come back. So you need to understand it isn't a simple journey that is ahead of them. It is a perilous journey. It's a difficult one. Guarantee, there is no um, a, a guarantee of success. 
And in that sense, it is really very similar to our own journey. When we journey on our way to the faith, we must leave those whom we love behind, so to speak. In other words, they must not hinder us. They must not hinder us. So if you have family members who are not in the church, if there are family members you know who are not practicing, the thought of them or the love that you bear them should not hinder you from growing into in the love of God. And that means in particular that if you are in a situation, you must pray that God gives you peace of mind and God gives you the ability to be, in a sense, indifferent and not be constantly um, weighed down by the way they may treat you or the way they behave. Because only when you reach that type of holy indifference will you truly be able to give them witness of the peace of God in your life. Because neither are you going to be indifferent in the sense of, I don't care, that's not what we're talking about. Rather, you are indifferent in the sense that you give them the freedom to be whom they chose to be, yet at the same time, you care and love for them constantly. And that is the redeeming and powerful love of God. And that is a love that penetrates the hardest barrier there is. Yes. If you are a parent and if you have children under care, it's a different situation. Uh, In that case, uh, you are still uh, responsible for them and they must obey you. Now, if they're not obeying you, then you, you and your husband must question yourselves, are you being faithful to the covenant? God did not make it difficult for us. And I'll repeat it. God did not make it difficult for us. One of the greatest lies of this of our times is the thought that children are difficult. And by difficult, really what people mean impossible. That is a lie. And it is so ingrained in the minds of people that I got to tell you how many good, pious, Catholic families I meet who live in anxiety for their children. Who are afraid then when the children become teenagers, they'll go crazy. I assure you, this is not so. I cannot tell you the number of families I know where they, these families are faithful to the covenant They're open to life. They are striving for holiness. They're not perfect by any means. They have their own weaknesses and sinfulness. But they're striving for holiness. They do want to do God's will. They obey His commandments. They practice their faith and pray. And their children are obedient. They have obedient children. And I'll give you an example of one particular case where a father told his 13-year-old son that because of the fact he disrespected his mother, he's taking away from him all his games and all his books. And that particular kid loved the games and the books. And this father told me, he was very surprised because he would remember how he was when he was 13. If it was him he would have rebelled. Instead, he sees his son applying himself to actually improve in the way he respects his mother. 
And the child, 13 years old, could see the love of his father in the action taken against him. And so the relationship between the father and the son is not, not only is not broken down, it is actually reinforced. The love between them is stronger. That, my friends, is the working of the Holy Spirit through the blessings of marriage. That's what God has promised He will do. He will bless you. So you would have a blessed life with your children. That's the intent. And you can ask Him that if you are married. If you're not even asking Him that, that, then you're on your own. But you must understand what it means to be married in His eyes. And you must invoke His blessings upon you. And if you're not, if you have erred, if you've done things that are against the church, you had an abortion, you had, you've used contraception, whatever the case may be, come back to Him in confession. Ask for His healing, and He'll pour His graces upon you. That's what He wants to do. But for the love of God, do not be afraid. Because that fear will snuff any peace and any joy. And what kind of example would you be giving your children? How will they be able to do great things if they see you living in anxiety and in fear? How? That's key. That's very important. Verse 3. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. And you notice it doesn't say Joseph's ten's brothers, because there were eleven in all. And, that's, and that is again highlighting this drama that uh, Jacob lived. He lost Rachel during a travel. He lost Jacob, uh, Joseph during another travel. And now here comes a third one. And he's unwilling to let go of Benjamin. He cannot. Right? He cannot. Even holy Joseph has those weaknesses. And God will compose with them. And God will work through them. Alright? But you will see in chapter 43 how he has to let go of his son. A very strong reminder of what God asked Abraham to do. What he asks each and every one of us to do. You're not to hold to your children as if they are your own. They are God's. So you must bring them to God. That's your duty. And if you are in a situation where you have a very, um, um, where you have a good marriage, where both father and mother are concerned about their faith and growing in the faith, then you can play a very active role in bringing them to their to to uh, to God. There is a there is a twelve year old girl that I know who two days ago. Was, um, was found by her parents crying. And her mother asked her why she was crying. And the reason why she was crying is because she had heard that a friend of hers, who was also about 12 or 11, remember, had stopped going to Mass on Sunday. She was crying over that. The parents of this little girl are like everybody else. They have their own issues, their own, their own difficulties, and they have their, their own um, defects and sins to deal with. 
But because the channels of grace, the communication of grace is flowing in this family, the Holy Spirit blows where it wills. And, it produ- and the Holy Spirit produces fruits. Beyond what any education the parents might give would. You see? This is really the tragedy of our century that somehow, somehow we were sold this bill, this bill of goods that said, contracept, you make your life easier. See how wicked and how demonic this is? Because as soon as you do that, you cut away the one thing you need to make your life blessed, the Holy Spirit. And then your life becomes Hellbound. So they went down, right? And this is very interesting, this business of going up and going down. Um, so verse 3, went, went down to buy grain in Egypt. I don't think that the went down is due to the sort of uh, cartographic representation of a map. Where, you know, when you look at the map, if you know the map around the Mediterranean, you got Egypt down here and you got Canaan or Israel up there. But that's because the map is oriented towards the north. That's a modern phenomenon. Right? Older maps of antiquity don't necessarily, are not necessarily oriented towards the north. So we shouldn't overlay on top of their understanding of one down, our understanding of one down. We, don't th- we shouldn't assume, because we understand one down to mean geographically located, down, that they understood it this way. For instance... In the, uh, in, the, in the mentality of Israel, you always go down from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is on the hill, true, but that's not why. Because spiritually, Jerusalem, the temple, is the closest thing to heaven. So you always go down. Yeah? So, um, going down and going up are really important notation. They're not... A pure geographic location. Oh, they you know went down. Why is Scripture telling us this otherwise? Instead of just saying they went to Egypt, do we really care to know that they went down to Egypt? No. The intent here is presumably the holy writer is pointing out to us one simple fact: the brothers are now going down, and they're going to go so far down as to bow down to jo- to Joseph. They went down. And particularly for the the readers who are in Babylon at the time this is written, remember Israel or Jew, Jew, uh, the, the Jews are, have, are now living in Babylon in exile away from the temple. So they went down to Babylon, right? They're in exile. And so if you put your sh- yourself in their shoes, and here you are in Babylon reading this, right, and you're in absolute crisis mode because your youth are obviously very attracted by the prestigious Babylonian culture. Again, re- remember, Babylon is not what you might think of it today, you know, a bunch of stones and desert. Right? It was the Manhattan of the time. It was the place where things were happening. If you wanted to be hip, you'd be in Babylon. So you've been uprooted from your own land. Your temple is gone. You're living in exile. You're birthing children in exile. And what are they facing? 
the culture of Babylon. What are they going to look up to? Right? The suspended gardens of Babylon. One of the wonder, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temples that were ornate and decorated. Right? So you are in a real crisis situation. You are surrounded by people who do not share your values, who don't even understand them, who mock you, right? as is recorded in the Psalms. And you know that you can't even offer sacrifice. The temple is gone. And you're reading this text, and you know they're going down to Egypt, and yet even in Egypt, there was someone who God placed there to help them. Even in the unlikeliest places, you will find help. God does not leave you alone. God will send someone on the way to help you. So they go down to Egypt, and now they meet their brother. So, St. John Chrysostom tells us the following. They did all this out of ignorance for the time being. You see, it was a long time since they had last seen Joseph, and so they no longer recognized their brother's appearance. After all, it was likely that some change had occurred in him now that he had reached maturity. Still, I'm inclined to think that it all happened as a result of this dispensation of the God of all, so that they would fail to recognize their brother, either from conversing with him or by sight. After all, how on earth would they have formed such an idea? I mean, they were under the impression that he had become a slave of the Ishmaelites and by now was enduring slavery under the barbarians. Whereas they were in no position to conceive any other idea and to recognize Joseph, he recognized them as soon as he saw them and took every care to conceal his identity, wishing to deal with them as with foreigners. So, why did Joseph act the way he did? Why did Joseph seeing his uh, brothers and recognizing them, acted the way he did. He looked at them and he said, you are spies. Now, first we need to understand from the geography of Egypt that the northernmost part of Egypt is the most vulnerable to an attack. If you're going to attack Egypt, the easiest way to do it is from the north, where they're coming from. There is famine all over. Therefore, the temptation to raid Egypt must be very high. Hence, his attack makes complete sense in the context in which they're living. He didn't come up with it randomly. Third, if you are a force about to attack Egypt, you would send spies. That's what you would do. Right before the attack, you'd send spies. And the most common way to send spies is disguised as merchants. Why? Because merchants are the ones who go everywhere. They're expected to go everywhere, and hence, they're the ones that can collect information most easily. Here they're coming down, wanting to buy grain. Therefore, they're acting as merchants. Hence, in the eyes of an Egyptian, this accusation would not seem out of place. Presumably, it was not the first time that foreigners were accused of spying. Okay? So now we understand that piece of it. 
What he tells them is that you have come to spy the weaknesses of the land. And we understand what that means. They're coming to see what weak points there are so that they can report back to their leaders in the wake of an, right before the attack takes place. All right. Now, why is he leveling against them this accusation? Remember, jo- Joseph had suffered a very significant trauma. He'd been thrown in a pit, severed from his brother in a very violent way, and he never seen him again. When he sees his ten brothers coming down, what is the first thought that might come across his mind? They did the same thing to me as they did to Benjamin, what they did to me. They killed Benjamin. So, what does he want to find out? Now, he can't just go out and off and ask them, so where's your brother Benjamin? Right? So he provokes this accusation, partly because he wants to find out, partly, I'm certain, and the text will support that, because of resentment and anger. And he accuses them of being spies. Now, when he accuses them of being spies, they start providing information about themselves. They want to justify that they're not spies. And in the process, they say something that should be very interesting for us, because they say, and they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. Obviously, the text says, and they said, it doesn't imply that all ten of them spoke with one voice. One spoke in the name of all. Presumably, Reuben or Judah. Right? Then he says, it is as I said, your spies. And that's when you understand when he tells them, send one of you and let him bring your brother. He wants to see Benjamin. Right? While you remain in prisons, and then we'll determine. But then the interesting thing, he takes an oath. By the life of Pharaoh, and remember, he's speaking as an Egyptian, there is a translator, by the life of Pharaoh, who is Pharaoh? He's a God. This is not the same thing as saying by the life of President Obama or President Bush or President Reagan or whatever president you want to think of. It's not the same thing. Here he is calling upon one who in Egypt is considered to be a God. So he's taking an oath by a divinity. He just took an oath. But notice, he doesn't say by the life of Pharaoh you shall surely die. You notice? There is no rash judgment on his part. So now he's beginning to contain his anger. That's what you would expect. If you're lying to me, you'll die. That would be a rash judgment. He stays to his point. You're spies. And then, the answer is, the one I'm looking for, oh yeah, verse 11. We are all sons of one man, We are honest men. We are honest men. Now, there are two ways in which you can look at this passage. One, which is not fruitful. Actually, one that will go, will in essence go against um, any spiritual growth. And that is looking at them 
as though you're not one of them. Right? How could they say such a thing? This is terrible. Yada, yada, yada. The real fruitful way to look at it is you are one of them. Why am I saying that? Because one of our biggest problems is that we are far quicker to point the sins and weaknesses of others than to see our own. We are far quicker to justify our actions rather than justifying someone else. I'll give you an example. Uh, You're driving on the highway and somebody cuts you right in front of you and breaks. And you nearly, nearly rear-ended him. What is the first thought that comes to mind? Lord, please, uh, I want to pray for my brother driving in front of me because he's having a hard day. Right? Think about that. Let's, Let's take that in slow motion. Because we take that for granted. Here's my point. We take that for granted. We accept and forgive this behavior all too readily. We assume it is normal. Notice, we assume it is completely normal for us to be up this way. Now, I want you to take a step back and see that here you are saying whatever you want to say about the other person. You're probably using some flowery language in the mix. And I want you to see that from the point of view of the garden angel of that other guy. So remember, whatever you're saying in the car, the the other person may not have heard you, but his guardian angel or her guardian angel heard you. Now I want you to see it from his angle, looking at you, and from the point of view of your guardian angel, who's listening to you, uh, presenting a very interesting aspect of your personality. What do you think they would think of that? How would they take it? Would that, makes them, would that make them happy or sad? And if you sat in an angel, what of God? Have you made God happy? Because on the spur of the moment, you completely forgot that God was there, that this event took place for a reason, And most likely the reason is that that person in that car needed your prayer, your prayer on the way to heaven. And because you did not pray for him, you did not pray for him, that occasion of grace was lost. It could not be replaced. No one else could pray for this person, not even Our Lady. It was meant for you. Do you see how far we are from seeing things the way God wants us to see them? Do you see how far we are from understanding we are a family? Do you see how the devil uses every occasion to instill in us thoughts of division, of judgment, of wrath, of anger? Because our minds are not tuned 
to the love of God. Why? It's very simple. We're perfect. On that spot, on that moment, when that happens, we're perfect. Let me put it to you this way. Suppose for a second that it wasn't you in that car when that person broke in front of you. Suppose it was someone who, when he was 18, got drunk, drove in the car, in his car, and killed a mother and, and two babies on the side walk. How do you think he would react if that happened to him? He might scream and yell like everybody else, or he might say nothing at all. He might simply bear it because he knows what he has done. And what he has done is far worse than what this person just did. And there lays our problem. Because on the moment when that happens to us, we do not think, not for a second, that we have done far worse. You see, we are all honest men. We are all honest men. So when you read this passage, if you do not have sympathy for the brothers, if you do not understand why they're saying what they're saying, if you can't chuckle at it and thinking, yeah, I'd have said even more. I would not have just said, I'm an honest man. I'd have said, I'm an honest man, and I would have added a bunch of other things. Then you're opening yourself up to the graces of the Holy Spirit because you're saying, Lord, help me. Do you see the reading of Scripture? Scripture shows us our own image. Scripture shows us our own image. And what we must do is work on ourselves until Scripture shows us the image of Christ. Ours is gone. All that remains is the face of Jesus. And the only way we can do that is if we are aware of ourselves, of our weaknesses, of how we really are not honest. Most of the time, we're really good at dissimulating our thoughts. We're really good at hiding what we really think. We're really good at pretending that we are who we are not. And on and on the list goes. And so in this image, when you go before Christ for confession, spiritually, Joseph represents Christ. And Christ is saying, you are surely spies. Meaning what? You're coming to confession, one foot in and one foot out. You're coming to confession because you're hungry. You're coming to confession not because you love me, but because you're afraid of hell. And the last thing we should do in confession is say, No, my Lord, I'm an honest man. Yes. Ah, very good. Excellent question. It sounds, I'm, I'm here saying something that is paradoxical, right? I said we make our garden angels sad. And I said, they don't have emotions. How could that be? And the answer to this is that sadness is not an emotion. No more is joy an emotion. Both of them have an emotional component. In other words, they are expressed through emotions, but they're much more than emotion. All right? Why? Because they originate in the mind. It is when you understand something, 
when you comprehend a situation, you realize the consequences of it in your mind, and emotionally, because you have a body, you feel it. But even without your body, in your mind, because you understand what's going on, what, what is going on, you will be in a state of sadness. All right? Or you'll be in a state of joy. Hence, even if you do not have a body, you experience these states. Joy, sadness, etc. Otherwise, how could we say that angels in heaven can be ecstatic, can be in ecstasy when they don't have a body? Right? Yeah. All right, so... We understand now why Joseph is doing what he's doing. He wants to test his brothers and see if his, uh, his younger brother is alive. So initially, he wants to put all of them in jail, but then he changes his mind. Why does he change his mind? I'm sorry, not all. All, save one. He wanted to send one back. One back. Why, does he change his, why does he change his mind? Why does he decide to do the opposite? Keep one, send the others. He says, first of all, do this and you will live, for I fear God. Notice how Joseph now is oriented towards God. Notice how initially he goes to this rash movement, then he thinks about it. Now when he thought about it, what did he realize? If he kept nine and sent only one, what does that mean? They need food. You send one, there's no way for him to take ten donkeys with him and the rest of it, right? They need food. So he realizes that by his action, he's endangering everybody. So he reverse course, right? He reverse course. And that is important for us specifically for the virtue of wisdom or prudence. Prudence. Prudence is this cardinal virtue that people confuse with slowness. People think that if you are prudent, it means you are slow. It means you're not going to do, you're not going to take action until you've analyzed and have analyzed some more and some more and you've talked to people and talked to other people and analyzed some more and talked to some more people and eventually... You know, because it's a full moon and your car broke, you make a decision. Analysis paralysis. People have a misunderstanding of what prudence is. Right? In fact, the man who is prudent is the one who can act with lightning speed. Why? Because prudence forms our mind, our intellect... To think like God. Prudence is nothing else but the, th the mind conformed to God's wisdom. And when the mind has been conformed to God's wisdom through experience, the prudent man displays courage and acts very rapidly. When he's seen the situation multiple times and he understands it to the depth that it needs to be understood... That's the key to the depth that it needs to be understood at. He takes action very quickly. Right? Yes. T totally. 
Totally. Your, your, your question is absolutely fair. When he says, for I fear God, um, let me take a quick look um, and see what the Hebrew says. Did he use... There is no indication that he actually used Yahweh or Elohim or any of the names of God that the Hebrews would be aware of. My, I doubt he would do that because then he would tip them off. But at least he's de- demonstrating restraint. Right? Restraint. At least you can see from their angle he's demonstrating restraint. From our angle we know where he's at and we know he does fear God, not Pharaoh. Right? And what is the opposite of this restraint when you can restrain yourself? The opposite is perfidy. You become perfidious. See, it's important to know the language. Otherwise, you can't characterize um, situations. You can't characterize state of mind. You, you can't provide help to people. right? But one is perfidious is when is will, will act rashly, with the intent of harming someone, right? Acting rashly with the intent of harming someone. You know you're going to harm someone, you you go ahead and do it. Okay? Restraint controls that urge. Restraint controls it. So whether what you, the way you speak, what you say, what you do, if you can control that and think it through, at the very least, you'll be controlling that urge in you and in me that can pop up in multiple situations where you just want to hurt somebody because you're, you're, you're frustrated. Of course, it never happens, right? You're frustrated, uh, your tooth is hurting you, you have a headache, whatever, and somebody comes and starts talking to you and can't stop. And then you just tell them to stop talking in, in a... In a, um, in a way that makes them stop. Maybe for a lot longer than you really want it. Right? We're honest men. Exactly. So he changes his mind and then he provides them with the food and he gives them their money back. Right? Why did he give them their money back? They're his brothers. He had the authority. True, he has the authority to give them their money back. A bonus to come back. That's a really interesting one. I like that one. <laughs> Corporate mentality. <laughs> Joseph and company. <laughs> That's a very good one. Actually, hold on. Hold on a second. Before we go there, I want, I want to bring one thing to your attention. He threw them in jail for three days. What happened to them? Right? What happened? Here's what, what happened. On the third day, yeah, verse 21. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. And then we saw the distress of his soul when he besought us, and we would not listen. Therefore, in this distress, come upon us. Observe the working of God. Right? The whole thing was meant for them to repent. Most of us, most of us, because we're honest men, do not repent easily. We keep justifying our behavior. Right? But because God loves us, He doesn't let go of us. What does He do? He makes us suffer what we're making others suffer. He puts us in the same situation as we're putting others in. 
once we taste the bitter taste of our sins on others, one of two things can happen. If we correspond to God's grace, what happens? We are sorry for our sins and we repent of what we have done. We're willing to change our ways. If we do not correspond to God's grace, we harden our hearts. And we can say things like, but in their case, it was deserved. But in my case, it wasn't deserved. We harden our hearts. And then we're compounding the punishment. But because God's loved us, God loved us, He won't let go. Round two comes, and what happens? He makes it harder. He makes it harder. So He sends hardship our way to teach us His love because we don't listen. Because we don't listen. I was just talking to a friend of mine who told me that when she was young, there was this guy who, uh, his name was Joseph, his first name was Joseph, and for whatever reason, she could not stand him. And she prayed from the bottom of her heart that she would never marry a Joseph. Yeah. Her husband is Joseph. Yeah? Small example. But even in that case, God was listening. Even in those small things where we show rebellion, He's listening. You can, there, there, is no, there is no universal answer to this question of why do we correspond to grace or why don't we correspond to grace. Uh, that is primarily due to free will. Each and every one of us is endowed with an inalienable free will. Not even God will take away our free will. That is the first grace He gave us to be able to decide on our own. He will never take that back. It is a teaching of St. Thomas that God gives every person all the graces they need to be saved. Because if He didn't, God would neither be just nor merciful. Okay? So we shouldn't fall into this trap of creating a hypothetical situation. By the way, I have yet to meet somebody who can name me somebody who had never received any graces. It's always this sort of hypothetical situation that we create about somebody out there. If you look in the details of everybody's life, you will see that on their journey there have been many, 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 many occasions where God told them, all right? No, God gives every man all the means of grace necessary for his salvation. Why? Because otherwise we could not say that Christ died for all. And furthermore, God could not be justified in condemning anyone to hell. Yeah? So that's, that's an argument that we should shun from our minds. God is just. There is no partiality with God. God loves all. And God gives all sufficient graces to come to Him. All right? The question is, how do we respond to them? Yeah? So, they essentially repent. And notice, 
in order for the family to be reunited, even physically, repentance must take place. If you have parents who've been married, who've used contraception, that breaks the family. Kids don't respond, becomes, becomes rebellious and self-centered, grow up, do their own things, usually contracept, right? I will visit the sins of the fathers on their children down to the fourth generation. And the family breaks away, breaks apart, becomes dysfunctional. Now, the parents, older now, rediscover their faith, come back into the church. If they do not confess the sin, and if they do not reject that sin, and if they do not do everything they can to help others stay away from that sin, their family will not be united. There is no way for the family to be united. You understand? Repentance must take place, first with the parents, then with the children, in that order. And usually people will ask, well, how long this is going to take? Well, how long have the p- parents been committing that sin? Usually it's at least a decade, sometimes more. Where however long this has been taking place, this is how long it's going to take, and even longer to heal the problem. It's proportional. It's like we accept that we've put, we've been telling God no for a long time, but somehow, as soon as we say yes to God, He should immediately fix all the problems on the spot. That's the Santa Claus syndrome. God is not Santa Claus. So be patient. Be patient. If you're in a situation like, or you know somebody in a situation like this one, please help them be patient. God will bring about what they're asking if they persevere and if they continue. I knew a woman when I was in Canada. She was probably one of the holiest women I knew. Very, very holy woman. Her children would not speak to her. None of her six or seven children would speak to her. She was the paria of her family. They wouldn't visit her. They wouldn't talk to her. They kept their children away from her. And when my wife and I would go and sit and visit with her, and her house was filled with tapes from EWTN and rosaries, and, and it was almost like a church. And we'd sit and talk to her. And my wife asked her, how do you live this? Her first name was Elaine. Pray for her. She passed away about five years more, seven years ago. How did you how do you put up with this, Elaine? And her answer was, God gave me this grace to be completely detached and completely at peace with what is going on. I love my children. I pray for them daily. I offer my my sufferings for them. She had, I think, advanced case of arthritis all over her body. She was suffering tremendously. And I gave them all to, to our Lord. That was it. God gave her that peace to be detached from all of this despite what had happened in the past. And she died without seeing any change in her children. But her prayers were very powerful. So now we understand why Joseph went to Egypt, why he had to suffer what he had to suffer. It was his suffering, his suffering joined mystically to the cross of the, the death of Jesus on the cross. 
You understand? No suffering on its own is redemptive. No suffering on its own is redemptive apart from the sufferings of Christ. Right? The center of history is the crucifixion, from which every grace flows backward and forward. Otherwise, the devil could go to God and stand by Joseph or Abraham or Enoch and say, you cannot take them to heaven. They belong to me. The gates of heaven are not open. You cannot do that. That is unjust. And Christ would say, put it on my tab. I'm going to pay for all of it. You understand? That's why Jesus said of them that when they saw their day, when the prophet saw his day, they rejoiced because it gave full meaning to their suffering. You understand? That's the power, the redemptive power of the cross of Christ. In Joseph, he bore the pain, he bore the humiliation, the slavery, the imprisonment, all for this moment that his brothers may repent. Graces are given them after three days. I mean, think about it for a second. You know, <laughs> think about it for a second. He spent probably 10 years in jail going what they had to go through. They spent three days and they repent. You think it was just because of them? You think it because they were so, so honest they were able to repent in three days? No. Graces were poured upon them more than what they deserve on account of their brother for them to repent. There's this holy priest who was Jewish. He converted, became a Catholic, became a priest. And throughout his life, his mother remained a faithful Jew. She would have nothing to do with any of this Catholic stuff. And he prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for her and prayed for her and prayed for her. And then she died, died a Jew. And he, obviously, carried that with him all his life, wondering about his mother. And years later, after she passed away, this woman had this interlocution from the Lord. She didn't know who the priest was, but she heard the Lord tell him, Go tell father so-and-so that before his mother passed away, before she died on her deathbed, because of the intercession of my mother, I poured upon him, upon her so much graces she could not resist me. God wooed her with love. She was unable to resist him. That's why I keep on telling you in heaven what will satisfy you, what will make you rejoice is God's justice. Because once you see His justice, how just He is, how truly just He is, you will rejoice. And then when you will see His mercy, that will send you in ecstasy. Because you understand His justice. Alright. So then, He gives them the condition, go back, I'll keep Simeon. Why did He pick Simeon? Because of the two, Reuben and Simeon, these were the most violent, and Simeon had a lot of blood on his hands. So He kept that one in jail. Right? And he sent the others. Notice that Reuben here says, Did I not tell you not to sin against the lad, but you would not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. That's the last time he speaks as a leader. Actually, uh, 
Yes, he speaks to his brother also in this chapter, and that's it. When he says, slay my two sons, in verse 37, if I do not bring him back to you. Notice how violent he is. He's telling his father, look, if your son dies, let's make the situation worse by killing my two sons. Not only will your son be dead, but your grandkids will be dead at your own hand. Let's just say he lacks some fundamental principles of psychology, if nothing else. That's the last time we hear of Reuben. That's it. No more. Until we hear of the blessing, so-called, of Jacob on him in the last chapter of Genesis. And so he keeps him, and they go back. Now, when they get there, they see that their money was with them. They are dismayed. Why? Because, well, they have already the accusation of being spies. Now, on top of that, they can be accused of being thieves. So, of course, it dismays them. Because what is the chance of them being able to ever, re, you know, get back their brother? Right? But why did Joseph do that? Yeah, there is probably an element of test. But I think also there is an element that says, I want you to understand this is a gift. It's a gift. Your life is a gift. And the grain that you got is a gift. Now, mystically, what is Christ telling us? We come to him to Mass, with our sacrifice, with our money. Right? And when we repent, Christ not only gives us grain for the way, He gives us back what we gave Him. He gives us back what we gave Him. And so here are a couple of thoughts that I'd like you to think about when you go to Mass. If you are the... You know how you have the 99-cent store? Well, if you are the 99 church donor or the $5 church donor, I would like you to revisit that department. Most parishioners who go to Mass have absolutely no qualm at going to supper and movie and spending anywhere from 40 to 80 to $100. And then they go to church and they give between a dollar and $5. Coins, yes. There are even maybe people who give coins. If you are in that group, I would strongly urge you to reconsider. Why? Because if you're giving coins, what are you going to get back from God? Coins. With the measure that you give, so will you receive. People complain, well, how come God is not hearing my prayers? How come He doesn't send me... Well, what are you... How much love are you showing God? Now, for those of you who are prepared to take that to the next level, I would strongly recommend, very strongly recommend, that you make a change in your home budget. Well, if you don't have a budget, start by having one. You show God prudence and wisdom because you now live according to a budget. And the very first item on your budget, I would strongly recommend that the first item is the following. Take what you're making net. Let's, let's say you're making $1,000 net a month. I'm using 1000 as a simple number. It's round. We can understand what 1000 means. First thing you're going to do is this. Tithing. $100. 10%. 
and the rest of your budget flows from there. I'm not going to even go there. I don't want to scare people. That would be the next step up, right? For people who are who have tasted, who've gotten the taste of tithing and understands the blessing that come out of it, then we could go gross. If I said gross right away, people would get a short circuit. <laughs> Try net. Even that, God will bless you. Because He knows what kind of sacrifice you're making. And He knows the how scary it may be for you to go to that level. And try him out for six months and see what happens. This is the only case in all of Scripture where God says explicitly, put me to the test. Anywhere else would be a sin to put God to the test. Here, God says, put me to the test. See what I will do in your life if you tithe. Tithing is to give God the best of the best. That's why today, figuratively, most of us don't have, you know, um, lambs and cows and horses and donkeys and chicken and whatnot. We've got cash. By putting that on your item, number one, being tithing and sticking to it no matter what and being faithful to it, see how God will bless you in return. It would be half to the church and half to, to the poor. Usually, that's the way to distribute that. I would like to remind you, by the way, when you're tithing, tithing is not almsgiving. Tithing is simply part of piety. It's giving God His due. That's part of our duty. Do you understand? When I'm tithing, I'm not being generous with God. I'm just doing my duty. Now, if I give beyond that, beyond my tithe, that's almsgiving. All right? It is beyond my duty. God does not, God does not require us to do almsgiving. Nor does the church require us to do tithing, interestingly enough. The church puts us under, under command to fast, and only two days of the year now. Um, but that's about it. But the church does not require us to tithe because it knows, the church knows, she knows how much we have hardened our hearts. So she has lowered her requirements because she does not want us to be constantly under pain of punishment because we're not obeying the laws of the church. In essence, the laws of the church are becoming laxer, becoming lax, I don't know if laxer is a word, they're becoming lax because of the hardness of our heart. And I hope that many are actually doing far more than what the minimum requirement by the church. Okay? Last point. My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he only is left. If harm should befall him on the journey that you are to make, you you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to shale. What is he basically saying? He's essentially saying, I am speaking humanly now. I've forgotten about that promise that God made to me, the covenant where God told me, by your children, I will bring kings. And I'm only thinking humanly. Right? So he resists. And we'll see how this is resolved in chapter 43. But understand that this whole thing is a metaphor for us today. Are you holding back from God? What are you holding back? What do you keep so dear to you 
that you would not, would not want to give back to God. Whether it's your job, whether it is your children, whether it is your career, your projects, your ideas, however great they are, what are you holding back that you don't want? What are you, who are your children? Go home and tonight pray and ask the Holy Spirit to highlight these areas in your life that you hold dear to yourself. You would not allow them to go on a journey, whatever they are. And then imagine yourself at the foot of the cross and bring all of these and put them at the foot of the cross and give them back to Jesus. And then moving forward, you must make this decision in your mind. They are not mine anymore. Lord, what do you wish me to do? And you will see, this is a very tough battle. It's not easy. Because now you are stopping. You are, you are telling God, I will to be poor. I will not be rich. Because all the things you own, mental or otherwise, are your wealth. And now you're willing to give them up. And if you want a great helper in this effort, St. Francis. St. Francis of Assisi. Pray to St. Francis to help you understand the beauty, as he says, of Lady Poverty. He sings the praise of the beauty of Lady Poverty. That's our journey. Because when we die, we have to leave all that behind us. But if we do it willingly, we're showing God that we love Him above all. God bless you. All right, questions? Yes. Oh, good question. So the question is, um, today when you give to the church, it's tax deductible. Therefore, are you giving or not? Um, if you're giving more than you're getting back in taxes, you're giving. Right? It's a simple answer. So if you're usually tithing, you're giving. Um, I don't know what the percentage is. I don't usually play with, the, with those things. But typically, if you're at that level, you're giving. Now, the fact that it comes back to you through forms of tax deduction, notice, even though it's tax deductible, most people don't even go to tithing. Right? Hence, it is an effort. God would appreciate that. Yes. Yes. Very good question. So in the Gospel of St. Luke, the, the poor widow gave two pennies, the equivalent of two pennies. And Christ counted that for her to be far more than anybody else. But remember what he said. For she gave all that she had. Way more than tithing. Way more than almsgiving. She gave everything. Do you understand? Yeah. Whereas everybody else gave from their plenty. It didn't, it didn't hurt. That's why I say tithe, because it's going to hurt. And then once you are able to tithe, tithe to your gross, not to your net, because it hurts even more. And then you'll understand what that means. Yeah. Yes. Tithing is everywhere, you're right, but the church does not require us to tax. No more than the church requires us to go to confession more than once a year or to receive communion more than once a year. The church does it this way because she does not want to pile upon us guilt because of the words of Jesus. Whatever you bound on earth is bound in heaven. When the church puts a requirement, so attending Mass on Sunday is not in Scripture. You're obeying church law. It's the church who decided you must attend Mass every Sunday. The church can very well tomorrow decide you attend Mass every other Sunday. This is not in Scripture. This obligation is that of the church. And we say it's a mortal sin. 
Hence, if the church were to say, you must tithe, you must go to confession every week, you must receive communion every week, you must say the rosary every day, right? Imagine how many Catholics would be in trouble. You understand? So because of the hardness of our heart in which in the time we live and the weakness of our behavior, because a lot of us are walking around with diapers, spiritual diapers, the church has brought down the, the conditions. Look what they're doing in the Latin, right? They're moving all the holy days of obligation pretty much on Sundays because they're afraid that they'll be piling up sins upon most people because they won't go to Mass if it's not Sunday. Right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. It is through Christ. I mean, everything flows to us through the, through the, uh, the, the sacrifice of Christ and by Him through the Holy Spirit. And from the Holy Spirit through the, Our Lady and from Our Lady to the Church and from the Church to the world. This is the flow of grace. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. That's why the Church does not exclude that those who are not formally of the Catholic faith may reach heaven. Precisely because of the power of intercession of Christ. And the fact that he gives graces to all. And as we said last time, there may be some who are outside the church. There are some who are outside the church who do go to heaven. But in heaven, there is only the church. There are no two truths. But the door is open to them. And remember that it's also through the intercession of the church. The church is interceding for them daily. Every hour there is a mass being celebrated somewhere. So it's the power of this intercession that opens up the door for others. As we saw with Joseph, it was the suffering of Joseph that allowed his brothers to, be, to, 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 uh, uh, to repent. We don't know what happens in the heart of men at the moment of death. We don't know what happens right then where he's most vulnerable. Maybe God pours upon them graces and they accept his truth. Who knows? Yeah? Yes. Yes. Keep Sabbath, the holy, the holy Sabbath, keep the Sabbath holy, right? Yes, it became Sunday because it was a decision of the church. No, it was because of the writings of St. Paul who saw in Sunday the new day. And he's the one who argued that, that I mean, I'm sorry, the Lord himself argued that because the, the Jews were telling him, the, the, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, and saying, how come you work on a Sabbath? And his answer is, I am at work and my father is still at work. By this he indicated that the work that, was, that began in Genesis was not yet complete. It would be completed at the resurrection. And that's how St. Paul understood it. And the church following St. Paul decided that we still have to honor the Sabbath, but it made sense to them to honor it on a Sunday. Notice the power of the church to actually interpret Scripture in such a way as to move the day from the Sabbath to the Sunday, something the Jews can understand. Why? Because the grace is in the church. And, it, and she has that authority to do so. Yes. Yes. That's a really interesting question. Actually, the way it's framed is interesting. How far do you go with forgiveness? The answer is really simple. There are no shades of gray. You can't forgive somebody 75% or 3%. You forgive if you don't. What does forgiveness mean? First of all, let's understand what forgiveness means. What does it mean when you say, I forgive you? At the fundamental principle, forgiveness is to let go of what is rightfully yours. 
I want to make sure everybody understands this because there are so many different ways of understanding forgiveness. Forgiveness at the very bottom, when we say to God, and forgive us our trespasses, what are we saying to Him? Relinquish what is rightfully yours towards us. What is rightfully His? Judgment. Yeah. As we forgive those who trespassed against us. We are relinquishing what is rightfully ours. What is rightfully ours? No, 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 no. There is something there. Otherwise, you can forgive. If, if nothing was yours, you couldn't forgive, could you? No, no, no. You couldn't forgive then. There is something that is yours. Otherwise, there is no forgiveness. What is yours? The right to have a case in court. And present evidence that show that you are, you have been wronged. That's yours. If somebody comes and harms you, automatically he's giving you the right to accuse. You understand? If that's not the case, then there is no, there is no forgiveness to speak of. There's nothing. So when you say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive, you are saying, that guy who came into my house, who did all these things, I am letting go of my right to accuse him. Now we have an interesting twist to this. Okay, so then what do you do? Let's say he did all this and you caught him. All right? And you want to forgive him. What do you do? You let him go? But then if you don't let him go, how are you forgiving? Do you understand the problem? You have to forgive him. Set aside prayer for a second. Set aside prayer. For, you're absolutely right. You pray for him. I'm not saying you shouldn't. But I just want to take it one step at a time. Set aside the prayer and we'll talk about the emotions and how you feel towards him and the love and all of that. Set that aside. Just look at the situation. You caught him. Do you let him go? Because you're forgiving him. Forgive. Hold on. For, let's understand what the problem is so we can present the appropriate answer. We just said that forgiveness is Letting go of your right to accuse him. If you let go of your right to accuse him, why wouldn't you let him go? Because you have to teach him. But why do you have to still... But then how are you forgiving him if you still have to have justice be served? But we just said forgiveness is to let go what is yours, the right to accuse someone. Forgiveness is letting go of what is your right, the right to accuse. Why would you still bring somebody to justice if... You just said, I forgive you. Here's what's going on. Before we get into the charity piece, which is you're absolutely right on, Fatty was alluding to it, there's something else at play. When this man harmed your family, whom did he harm? Yes, God, but who else? All of the society. And while you do have the right to speak in your own and let go of your own qualm, the society has its rights. And therefore, by him standing uh, in court does not contradict the fact that you forgave him because he still has to render account, give account to the society of what he has done. Where do we see that? We see that in the Latin rite in the Confideor. I confess and why am I confessing to my brothers and sisters? Ah, because I owe them. My sins have hurt them. 
That's why I'm confessing. It's not there because it sounds poetic and beautiful. It is there because it's a necessity. Do you understand now how this works? Okay. Now, beyond that, we can take it one step further. This is, Fadi, what you were alluding to earlier, right? The fact that by stopping him, it's also showing charity for him. Is that what you were alluding to? Yeah. Is that what you were alluding to earlier? Yeah. So, here's the notion is, when you prevent someone from committing further crimes, you're lessening the punishment he's going to receive. Therefore, it's also an act of charity to get him to stand trial. It's also an act of charity because he might learn, he might repent. All right. You understand? That's what forgiveness is. Okay, now, you might still be absolutely and completely enraged. Your emotions, if you were to follow them, would want you to strangle the guy. Does this mean you didn't forgive him? No, not at all. Please, don't torture yourself with this. Forgiveness is what? It's an act of the will. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And because we have disordered disorder within us, remember from original sin, and because we still may be in spiritual diapers, our emotions have not been disciplined by virtue. Virtue is to discipline our emotions and make them act according to right reason, which is reason that is being illuminated by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. You see? So in that case, our emotion may be running crazy. Yes, but the point is exactly, you forgive. It doesn't mean your emotions are in, are in check, nor does it mean that you feel, notice the word feel, you have feelings of love towards him. So please, if you are in a situation where you've been, You've been wronged in any way, and you have forgiven this person, and you still have resentment, or you just have bouts of emotion to it. Don't, don't lay guilt upon your shoulder thinking you haven't forgiven. All right? Pray to God to give you peace, but you've already forgiven this person. Answered your question? Did you have a follow-through? Follow exactly, exactly. I don't have to like them. Meaning emotionally, I may not be, I don't want to be in their presence. I may not be uh, happy when they're around me. Yet I still love them because I pray for them and because I sacrifice by letting go of what is mine. So please understand, forgiveness has the spaces that is something that is rightfully yours. And I would like to point out to you also something very important. Do not confuse forgiveness with Lack of justice. If you turn uh, quickly to the book of Revelation, chapter 6. So, book of Revelation, chapter 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, so the Lord is going through the opening of the seals. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. They have been slain, meaning what? They've been martyred because they believed in Jesus and they stood by their belief. So they have been wronged. Yes? All right, notice now. And for the witness they had borne, they, cry, they cried out with a loud voice. Why are they crying out with a loud voice? Because it means power. 
This is a powerful prayer they're going to pray now. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before thou wilt judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth. That is the prayer of the saints. Do you think they are full of anger and resentment and wrath and they want, uh, they want what is their own? They're in heaven. Those souls are in heaven. They're saints. And this is how they're praying. By the way, this is a good passage if you have friends or Protestants who says, well, you know, the dead have nothing to do with us. Point them here, right there, and ask them, why is this prayer there in the middle of the liturgy, in the middle of the heavenly liturgy? Okay? Then they were given each a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves has been. Here's the answer. The number is not yet total, meaning what? The wave of uh, martyrs is not yet complete, but when it will be, God will render judgment. All right? So again, forgive us is... What is it at the end of the day? It's basically we're saying to God, all right, even though it's mine, it's my own right, I'm going to give it up out of love for you and salvation for this brother of mine who did what he did. That does not exonerate that person from standing trial before society, nor does it exonerate him from standing trial before God. You understand? That's really important when it comes to forgiveness. All right. One last question. Yes. What is the best way to unite our sufferings to Christ? What a great question. And I'm going to give you a very simple way. It's not the only way, but it's a simple one. It goes in stages. First, we have to be able to... to, First, we pray to our guardian angel to help us be mindful of the meaning... The, the, how meaningful our suffering is. So, so therefore, we have to be in the right state of mind. Hence, it is a state of mind that says we're praying constantly. So, you're walking in your house, and you see a piece of paper on the floor. If you could think, if on, on that moment you have the presence of... of um, the, 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 if you could think at that moment that that piece of paper was ordained from all eternity by God for you, then you understand that God is speaking to you through this piece of paper. And you understand that maybe, let's say, you have back, you know, uh, back aches or something. You know, it's hard for you to bend. Then on the moment, because God is talking to you, you can visualize or think about the crucifixion. Therefore, one of the key ingredients to be able to unite our sufferings with Christ is to meditate very regularly on the passion. So they can come to our mind. Now that you're thinking about what Christ suffered, you say to yourself, I willingly and joyfully offer this pain in my back as I'm bending down to pick this piece of paper in obedience for your will, O Lord, for the salvation of mankind and for the glory of your church. That's it. It happens silently. Nobody notices. No one is aware of what you just did. But in doing so, you've done a number of things. First, 
act of piety. You're giving God the glory. Second, act of faith. You're saying, Lord, I trust and I believe that you're present in my life every second of the day. Third, act of love. I do this for you. Fourth, act of charity. I do it for others. Imagine what you just did. This is huge in God's eyes. You're uniting your sufferings with Christ. So it becomes habitual. Very simple. But it's aided by a uh, contemplative prayer. It is aided by the rosary. It is aided by a meditation on the scripture and on the sufferings of Christ. Exactly. I mean, you could walk past, walk past the paper. If suffering has been handed to you, it's a habitual suffering, then you do what you're doing right now, but you do it on a regular basis. And you, you, have, to, uh, you have to train your thought and think about it as a gift. This is how you offer it up. It's a gift. Because remember, if I'm uniting my suffering with Christ, I better not be uniting something really icky. I better be uniting something that is beautiful. That's why within Mass, we use incense to represent the prayers of the saints because the prayers are born out of sacrifice and the sacrifice has a pleasant aroma before God as it ascends. Right? And it's incense because we burn it all. So it's really like a uh, holocaust. The holocaust is called the ascending, meaning when you burn the whole animal, this is the holocaust. Everything is burned. Nothing is eaten by the priest. Everything is offered up to Christ, to God. So your suffering are like a holocaust. There's nothing for you to take from. So they better be pleasing to God. Hence, your attitude. So it's a real training in spiritual growth. All right? Okay. Well, that's a very good point. And actually, you're, you're answering your own question by saying escalating. So it's escalating he amplifies something that is already in you. And actually, oftentimes, God will use the devil to help you see those areas he wants you to work on. Yeah? All right. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.